release them from the darkness of the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. I want you to imagine that you're living hundreds of years ago, that you're in an assembly that's much like this one, except probably a little bit smaller, and you're gathering in the synagogue, because that's your custom every Sabbath day. As long as you can remember, you've come to the synagogue. The synagogue's been where you've studied the law of Moses. You're one of the Jewish people, one of God's chosen people. And for as long as you can remember, you've been instilled those stories and those prophecies that have been held all throughout your lifetime. And so as you get together, there's someone that has grown up there in your community. You've seen them ever since he was a child. And he's come back. He's been out of town, but he comes back in town, and he's handed a scroll from Isaiah to read. And he reads those words that Jeremy just read for us. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then he sets down the scroll, goes to sit down, and he says a statement that captures your attention. He says, today that prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. The translation is, this prophecy from Isaiah that you've heard all your lives, today is being fulfilled, and I'm the fulfillment. I'm the anointed one. I'm the one who's been sent to proclaim good tidings to the poor. I'm the one who's been sent to heal the brokenhearted. I'm the one that's been sent to set the captives free. How would you feel if you heard someone say that? Someone you'd seen ever since he was born. The son of a carpenter that lives in town. You've You've heard the stories about how when he was a boy, he stayed behind at the temple instead of following his family out of Jerusalem. And now he's come here to his hometown and he's telling you that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one of God. If you can put yourself in that situation, then you'll be able to understand what's going on in Luke chapter 4. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to flip over to Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin there this morning and think about these words that Jesus speaks of here and how he fulfills this prophecy. As you're turning there, let me tell you how excited we are to have you with us, especially on this cold day. It's nice to be in a, a warm place where we can study God's Word together. And we've had a couple of cold weekends in a row. Last weekend, we had an elders and deacons retreat in a colder weekend. And I don't know what it is about that retreat, but we've had several that have been sick, uh, not not sick of each other, but I guess we got sick from each other. And so as we've come back this week, David Shannon, our preacher, has also uh, fallen ill. And so we want to hope that he gets better in all of those that we've been praying about who are sick. So as we focus today, we're going to pay special attention to what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 20, right after he quotes those words from Isaiah. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now if you'll notice in verse 22, they were all speaking well of him. But the longer Jesus speaks, the more unsettling this becomes. 
And if you look down in verse 28, you see the end result of this claim. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. You see, this is more than just a prophecy that Jesus mentions. What Jesus says makes the people in the synagogue so angry that they want to throw him off a cliff. Now just reflect on that for a little while. What would it take for you to be so upset with someone, anyone that you would throw them off a cliff, much less someone from your community of Nazareth? Jesus is making some very bold claims here as he talks about this prophecy in Isaiah. And it would help us just to focus on how Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Number one, when we talk about the Lord anointing someone, Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the word simply means anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one whom God has sent. He preaches good tidings to the poor. We see that throughout his ministry, Jesus spends a lot of time with society's misfits and outcasts, sinners, tax collectors. In fact, there was even an occasion in Luke chapter 21 in which he asked his disciples to watch a poor woman giving two mites into the temple treasury. And he said that she gave more than all of those wealthy people around her. We know that Jesus also healed the brokenhearted. In fact, when Jesus ministered to people, he could see their hearts. And we're reminded of the time a woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years comes to Jesus. She'd been suffering for so long, and Jesus healed her. But what I'd really like for us to focus on this morning is found in the latter part of this prophecy, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. Captivity is very serious business. When a child is kidnapped, we immediately spring into action, don't we? Law enforcement officers are called, different branches are checking out their data with other people, witnesses are interviewed, friends and family come to the aid of those people who are looking for their child. It's serious business, and we take it very seriously. When we hear about prisoners of war, no matter what war it's in or what country that they're mistreated in or maybe even killed in, our hearts hurt because captivity is something we take very seriously. And even though our prisons around the country are filling up, many people are deterred from a life of crime because they're afraid of what would end up happening to them in captivity. They don't want to be captive. None of us want to be captured. It's very serious business. And so for Jesus to proclaim that he was leading them out of captivity would have been a very serious claim. The Israelites are no stranger to captivity. You remember back in the book of Exodus, that's the story of Moses being used by God to deliver them out of captivity to the Egyptians. If you were to ask any Israelites in that setting what it meant to be in captivity, they'd know. They'd know what it meant to work for a difficult taskmaster in manual labor day after day. In the time of Isaiah and the prophets, they would have known what captivity was because they would have been exiled. The Babylonians would have come in and conquered them, taken them to a place where their God was not honored and where they were not given the opportunity to worship Him the way they had been. And they had to struggle with how do I remain faithful in captivity. The Jews in Jesus' day, when they thought of captivity, they might have thought of the Romans. After all, the Romans were the ones who were really in charge, even though the Jews were allowed to worship their God. But Jesus points to a deliverance from captivity that's far worse than any country that we can imagine. Jesus points to a deliverance from spiritual captivity to sin. And that's the message of the gospel. 
The message of the entire Bible shows that we can be delivered not just from physical captivity, but from spiritual captivity. And that's what Paul's speaking about in Romans chapter 6 when he says these words. He talks about being baptized into Christ, and he says in verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed of sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Paul here gives us a powerful message. Before Christ came, we're slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. And yet, with Christ's sacrifice, we can be freed from that sin to walk in a life with Him. Now, that might sound simple, but imagine if we took spiritual captivity as urgent as we took physical captivity. What if we were as serious about being spiritually free as we are about being physically free? There are many people that we know that might be in spiritual captivity, that might need the message of Jesus Christ to liberate them. What have we done to take it to them? We may fall into that category. We may be spiritually captive. What have we done to take advantage of the deliverance that Jesus has promised? Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has proclaimed freedom to the captives, and he has set the prisoners free. And that's good news. As we think about the message of the gospel, as we think about Jesus leading us out of captivity, it's important that we understand our battle with sin and the captivity of sin doesn't end when we become Christians. That's the reason why Paul would talk about this baptism in Romans 6. But then over in Romans chapter 7, just a chapter later, Paul talks about sin that's in him in in verses 14 through 20. And so what he wants to do, that's not what he's doing. He's doing the very things he doesn't want to do. Even though Paul had taken that step to be united with Christ in death and he'd risen up and he'd walked in a new life, he was still struggling with sin. And so our struggle with the captivity of sin doesn't end when we become Christians. In fact, the New Testament gives us examples of Christians who were held captive to sin. And so for a few minutes this morning, I want us to think about that. I want us to ask ourselves some difficult questions and hopefully walk away taking full advantage of the freedom that Jesus Christ offers us. I probably don't have to say much about Harry Houdini for you to know who he was. His name is synonymous with escape. He's one of the most famous escape artists ever to live. And you've probably seen the stories of him being tied up in a straitjacket or maybe chained up and placed in a container of water or maybe he was buried somewhere and he was able to escape. It boggled people's minds. And he used to brag that there was not a prison built that could hold him. There was not a jail cell in existence that he couldn't escape from. And so one day, a small town in England decided to take him up on his offer. They had just built a new prison, and so they invited him into their prison cell, and he walked in in his street clothes. They shut the door behind him, and he began to take this flexible steel rod out of his belt, and he started working on the lock. And he was working and working, and 10 minutes of working turned into 20 minutes, which turned into half an hour, And all of a sudden, he was working on this longer than he'd ever worked on, escaping any cell in his life. And he kept working and working. And finally, after two hours, nonstop, trying to pick this lock, he collapsed in exhaustion. He let his head hit the bar in front of him. And that's when the door swung wide open. They'd never locked the cell. And so the world's greatest escape artist spent two hours trying to get out of a room that wasn't locked. He could have easily opened the door and walked out. He never thought to check that. He just kept working on the lock, kept trying to do it himself. And I think there's some spiritual significance 
when we think about captivity to sin. You see, Jesus has given us a way out of our captivity. Jesus has given us a method of escape. He's proclaimed good news to the captives. The question is, are we still in the prison? Could it be that we are held captive in a prison that we've made ourselves, and the only thing keeping us there is our unwillingness to take advantage of Jesus' escape? Our unwillingness to take advantage of His rescue, to submit ourselves to His will, to just walk out the open door that's there in front of us. We see a couple of examples of spiritual captives in the New Testament. For just a few minutes, I'd like for us to look at some people who ended up falling captive to sin even after they'd become Christians. The first example we see of a spiritual captive is Simon the sorcerer. And what he shows us is that we're taken captive when we promote ourselves rather than promoting God's message. If you would flip over to Acts chapter 8, it's page 973 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 8 tells us the story of Simon Magus. Simon the sorcerer, he's often called. And let's read together what Luke tells us as he writes about Simon when he hears the gospel preached. Beginning in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he'd astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Look at verse 13. Then Simon himself believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And then we scroll on down to verse 18. And we see, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this, your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now before we're too difficult on Simon for what he does in the later verses, of this chapter. Let's scroll back to verse 9. Do you remember what Simon's purpose was as he did these tricks, as he practiced this sorcery? In verse 9, we read that he was claiming that he was someone great. And while Simon's problems later on may have involved money and offering money to purchase the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this is the root of Simon's problem right here. He was claiming to be someone great. We all like to be considered someone great, don't we? We like to be important. We like to have a powerful reputation. We like for people to look at us and to view us as someone that that is a really important person that has a lot of special benefits, special privileges. And see, Simon had this mindset before he became a Christian. In fact, in verse 10, we see that even the least to the greatest said, this man is the great power of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been given a compliment like that before, but can you imagine if people looked at you and said you were the power of God? It wouldn't take too many times before Simon starts to believe his own press, before he starts to hear that and think, maybe they're right. I guess I am someone special. It's amazing what we can believe the more we hear people tell us that. It reminds me of the old story told of Muhammad Ali as he was traveling on an airplane to go to a fight. 
He was sitting there in first class, and the flight attendant walked by and said, Sir, you'll need to fasten your seatbelt. Well, he didn't do anything. She walked by, went on her rounds, came back, and saw that he still hadn't fastened his seatbelt. And this was at the height of his popularity. I mean, he was considered invincible. And so as she talked to him, she said, Sir, I'm really going to need you to fasten your seatbelt. He looked at her very simply and said, Excuse me, miss, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she looked right back at him and said, Superman doesn't need an airplane either. Now fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> it's easy to get a little carried away with ourselves. And Simon must have been at this point where he's starting to believe that people thought he was someone powerful. We might not think of magicians as people who have very powerful or influential roles, but in the ancient world, magicians were often on the courts of kings and queens, helping them make their decisions and decide whether to go to war, whether to sign this treaty. So if Simon wanted to be someone great, he was in the right vocation. He had the right profession. And it's really interesting to see that Luke tells us that Simon believed and was baptized in verse 13. Now later on, Peter's going to say that, that Simon's heart's not right and that he doesn't have any, any part or portion in this matter. So it's difficult for us to know how sincere Simon's conversion was. All we can know is what the text says. But what's important to show us is that even though Simon had taken that act of being buried and that old man of sin had been put away, that didn't stop his old thoughts from creeping back in. That didn't stop old temptations from arising. And when he sees those miraculous gifts that the apostles were giving that showed that this message was truly from God, rather than stopping and saying, I get to serve this God, this powerful God, I get to serve him, I get to proclaim this message, Simon thought, I wonder how much it would cost for me to do that. Imagine if someone saw me with the power of the Holy Spirit and I could lay my hands on other people. Imagine what that would do for my reputation. You see, when we try to exalt ourselves rather than exalting God, we view everything differently. If I'm in the business of exalting myself rather than exalting God, Bible class stops becoming a place where I can learn more about God's Word, where I can be transformed more into His image and, and try to follow His will for me, and it becomes a place where I can try to show people how smart I am. Maybe I try to make some comments that let everybody know that I've studied this passage before. Or maybe I try to show people how much I know or how well-read I am or try to impress people. You see, when I'm focused on exalting myself more than exalting God, mission trips become a totally different experience. Rather than being places where I can see God's will working in the lives of people and, and people transformed and homes transformed by His message, mission trips just become another line on my resume, another, another notch on my belt where I can say, well, I've been to this many places and we've converted this many people and I've done this much for the Lord. And all of a sudden, I start viewing things differently. Attending worship service changes when I'm focused on exalting myself. Attending a worship service ceases being a place where I can encourage other people and, and worship the Almighty Creator, and it becomes a place where I can make sure I'm seen. Maybe make some social contacts, or, or maybe do some networking for, for my professional life. Let people know how dedicated I am, that I come on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, just to let people know where my priorities are. You see, when we're focused on exalting ourselves, everything changes. And the more we do to serve God, the more of a temptation it is to exalt ourselves rather than Him. As we've been in this area, especially over the past few years since I've been able to be a part of this congregation, I've witnessed the blessing of God in this place. And I'm fully convinced that one of the reasons God is blessing us is because we have leaders and members who are giving Him the glory. 
And I think that's outstanding. We have to give God the glory. And the moment we start looking at ourselves and start thinking, hey, things are going pretty well here at Mount Juliet. This is a pretty good crowd for it being cold outside. We must be doing something right. We must be doing pretty well. In fact, it must be our efforts that are making all of this worthwhile. As soon as we do that, we're falling back into the same trap that Simon fell into, focusing on promoting himself rather than promoting God. I'm glad that's not the attitude here. And I pray that we can continue to have the attitude that's going to give God the glory. It becomes more and more of a challenge the more blessings we receive to focus on the one who gives it and not those who get it. And so as Simon comes to Peter, he also does something else that's interesting. He offers him money for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, these miraculous gifts. And it reflects an attitude that I think is sometimes typical of us. He believed somehow that, that this money could get him these gifts, almost as if, as if God needed that from him. Paul would say it this way. When Paul was dealing with the philosophers on, in Athens, on Mars Hill, he was giving this sermon in Acts chapter 17. and verse 24, he talked about the God who made heaven and earth. And he said, since he is the Lord God, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything since he himself is the one who gives life, breath, and all things. God is the one who has created this earth and everything in it. And for me to have the attitude that somehow God needs something I have, that he's dependent on me, is to fall into that same trap that Simon did, thinking he could somehow purchase the gifts of the Holy Spirit as if some money he had could earn him those miraculous gifts God was blessing the early church with. God loves us. God wants a relationship with us. But He existed before we were born, and He will exist for all eternity. He is an eternal, changeless being, and He is not dependent on us. And when we understand that, we know that we need to exalt Him rather than exalt ourselves. And rather than trying to use God and use God's power like Simon was, we need to let God use us. It's a key difference. And if you'll notice the phrase that Peter uses in verse 23, he says, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. The NIV would say you are captive to sin. And it's really interesting that this, this phrase, poisoned by bitterness, or the gall of bitterness, would have been understood by Luke's readers to refer back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 in which it dealt with idolatry. Idolaters. This is, this is an idolatrous idea that somehow you've placed yourself before God. So we can be captive to sin if we start promoting ourselves over the Lord that we serve. Simon is a very, a very good example and a very poignant one. I heard the story once of a, a young preacher who decided that he was going to preach his first sermon. He had been to school. He'd gotten great grades. Everyone said he was a wonderful student. He was feeling very good about himself, and he thought, you know, if I'm going to go up there and preach this sermon, I'm going to have to be confident. And so he kind of walked up the, to the steps to the pulpit, and he, he swaggered up to the podium, and he put his Bible down, and he just began with the greatest of confidence. He seemed cocky. He appeared self-assured. And then he realized when he got up there, he'd forgotten his notes. And so as he looked around, he started to stutter a little bit, and he kind of started to stammer, and he couldn't remember what he wanted to say after this point, and he couldn't remember where he wanted to go. And finally, when it came time for the end of the lesson, he just closed his Bible up and kind of slunk down the stairs with his head held low. An older lady came up to him after that experience. She said, you know, I noticed one thing. If you had walked up the way you walked down, you might have been able to walk down the way you walked up. 
If we enter into life trying to hold ourselves up high and trying to promote ourselves, we're going to be humbled. But if we can humble ourselves and exalt God, then once we see God glorified, then he'll give us blessings we can't imagine. And so we know that we're held captive if we try to promote ourselves rather than God and his message. We're also held captive if we buy into the world's philosophy instead of abiding in God's word. And we see Paul deal with this in several places. A couple of key passages that come to mind, one's found in Colossians chapter 2, when he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The New American Standard would say, Beware lest anyone take you captive to philosophy. And then he would also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, Paul is dealing with people, and not just one, but several of his churches who have bought into the world's philosophy. They've become Christians. Remember, these letters were written to the church, and yet they were falling prey to some of the philosophies that were prevalent around them. And so Paul is reminding them that you need to stay out of the worldly philosophies and spend time in the Word. Years ago, a man said that all of us have a God-shaped hole in our hearts that only God can fill. And it's interesting to see Paul's wording when he writes to the Colossians, when he talks about philosophy being empty deceit. Anything else we try to place in, in that hole in our heart, anything else we try to use to take up that space is going to be empty. It's going to be meaningless. And as we think about the different challenges that were taking place, when Paul mentions the wise in 1 Corinthians it probably would have been referring to these Greek philosophers that went around and they had all these students and they claimed that they knew all of these concepts. When he mentions the scribes, we know from reading the New Testament, the scribes were experts in the law. They would have been people who understood the old law. And then when he talks about the disputers of this age or the debaters of this age, it probably reminds us of these, these rhetorical masters that would go around from city to city and debate each other for entertainment. And they would pride themselves on how well they could speak and what kinds of words they could use. Paul is saying you take any of those three groups and all of them compared to God are foolish because God's wisdom makes foolish the wisdom of the world. And so the philosophies or mindsets that may be prevalent in the world today are foolishness compared to God's wisdom. I talked with a missionary a few years ago from Thailand. He deals with college students most of the time, and he spent a great deal of time in America. Do you know what he said one of the biggest challenges facing them in evangelism was? One of the biggest challenges when teaching people in a primarily Buddhist country that don't know much about Christianity is that they, as they're learning about Christianity, think of America as a Christian nation. And so they're learning about Christianity, but then they see our celebrities that do things that don't line up with what the New Testament says. They see our political leaders from either side of the aisle doing things that don't line up with what the Bible says. And they're, they're caught in a trap. If America's a Christian nation, why aren't they following this Christian book? And to me, that really brought home the world in which we live. And it's so easy to become complacent, but the world in which we live has all of these mindsets and philosophies that could be counter to the will of God. And if you don't believe me, just take some time to think about different advertising slogans or different phrases we hear all the time. Here's one that has been very successful uh, for the city of Las Vegas, one of our top tourist destinations. What happens here stays here. Boy, what a slogan. What happens here stays here. You can do anything you want, and it'll stay in this one place. No one will find out about it. And yet, if I spend time in the Word, the psalmist reminds me that God knows the secrets 
of the heart in the 44th Psalm. We might hear this phrase, I deserve all this. I earned it. I don't know how many commercials end with the tagline because you deserve it. And it's easy to fall into that mindset. I worked hard. I earned all this. But then James would tell us in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift is from above. It's not something we've earned. It's something that God's given us. I might be tempted to say me first, whether it's a competition at work for a promotion or whether it's trying to get out on Mount Juliet Road before anyone else can. I want to be first. But Jesus says that the last shall be first and many of the first shall be last. Here's another one that we may deal with sometimes. God wants me to be happy. Well, when I look at the New Testament, I see what God desires. Peter would say that God desires that all men should repent. He doesn't desire any should perish. He wants us to turn our lives around. And when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3.16, he says that the very purpose of God sending his son was so that we could have everlasting life. God wants us to be saved. He wants us to obey him and to live an eternity with him. And that won't necessarily mean happiness on this earth. We won't be saved because we feel good. We'll feel good because we're saved. And so as we think about spending time in the Word rather than dealing with these philosophies in the world, we see that not much has changed since Paul wrote to the Colossians or the Corinthians. You know what one of the problems was the Colossians were dealing with, Paul has to address? The identity of Jesus. Who was Jesus? And in just a few months, a bestseller turned movie is going to come out and the Da Vinci Code will cause people to ask the question, who is Jesus? I thought I understood. Now I have questions. When Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, right after he talks about wisdom of God, he's going to deal with some divisiveness in the church. People have decided to follow this person or this person. And we still struggle with those issues today. You see, some things have changed, but a lot has remained the same. And we can be held captive when we buy into the words world's philosophy instead of abiding in the Word. When Jesus tells us to abide in His Word, it means to live there, to immerse ourselves in it. And unless we do that, we're in danger of being held captive. As we think about these temptations we have for falling into captivity, for being held in a, a prison of our own making, we realize if we promote ourselves rather than promoting God, if, if we try to use God instead of allowing God to use us, we're going to fall captive. If we buy into the world's philosophy instead of abiding into the, world, in the Word, just be like closing those cell doors and keeping us inside. The same one who set the captives free, who stood up before that synagogue and said that the words of Isaiah applied to him, is the same one who can set us free. As we think about all of these thoughts, I want to remind you of a story you may have heard before about a man who lived during the time uh, Andrew Jackson was president. George Wilson was a postal worker who was involved in a train robbery that had a federal payroll on it. And during the robbery, he managed to shoot and kill a guard. After he went to court, he was sentenced to death. But at that time, public opinion was against the death penalty, and, and people thought it was very cruel, and so they really leaned heavily on President Jackson to let him be pardoned, to give him a, a way of escape, a way to get out of it. And so finally, after much a convincing, President Jackson did issue a pardon. And George Wilson was pardoned. The interesting thing was, to everyone's surprise, he refused it. Here's a man who was sentenced to death by hanging, and for whatever reason, he refused the one pardon that could set him free. People were shocked. They didn't even know if that was possible. In fact, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they were asking the judge, can someone really refuse a presidential pardon? And look at what the judge's response was. He says, a pardon is a paper 
the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the parties implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon, but if it is refused, it is no pardon. Presidential pardon, one of the most powerful edicts we can think of, but it's not of any use unless you accept it. God has given us a tremendous message, a message that can set us free. But it's not of any use unless we let it change our lives, unless we accept it, unless we submit to it, unless we live our whole lives under it. And when we think about the case of George Wilson, it's a shame that someone was given a way to survive and he refused it and ended up dying. Wouldn't it be even more of a shame if we were given a way to have freedom from spiritual captivity and we refused it? Captivity is very serious business. And this morning, I want to ask you, are you tired of being captive? You see, we won't be able to take any action to get out of that cell of our own making unless we're tired of living there, tired of serving sin, tired of being a servant to something other than the will of God. And it may be that you're here this morning and, and you're tired from life, and this is the first time you've heard about the message of Jesus, the freedom that he offers. Maybe you're in that first category that we talked about earlier, that you're in the category of people who are slaves to sin and need to be redeemed by Christ. If you are, I hope you're tired enough of serving sin to take action. It could be that you've already made that choice, but just like Simon or just like these these worldly philosophers we talked about are just like every Christian that's ever lived. You've fallen prey to the same old temptations and this, the same old tests of faith that we experience every day. You've become bound by sin. You're in a prison cell and you know the only way you can get out is if you decide to take advantage of this pardon. You've imagined that you were in a synagogue in Nazareth. Now I want you to imagine that you're in another gathering of, of Jews. This one's much larger than this one. The Apostle Peter stands up. He quotes some prophecy. But he quotes the prophecy to say that this Jesus Christ whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. And the immediate response from the people there was much different than it was in that synagogue those many days earlier. The immediate response from those individuals was, what must we do? They were tired of being captive. They wanted to make a change. And I hope that every one of us this morning, no matter what form that change may take, will want to release ourselves from this captivity. And the only way we can do that is by taking advantage of this pardon. If there's any way we can help you, please come and let your need be known as we stand and sing together.